Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Diane Mulcahy. I'm the author of The Gig Economy. And if you want to learn how to become better at building real relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep on listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to the show. I can't wait to share this episode with you all. As soon as I recorded it, I was pumped to share it. And uh, this episode is with... Diane Mulcahy. And Diane, I've heard about her book for a really long time, The Gig Economy. And it's one that uh, really made a lot of waves. And she talks a lot about going a more unconventional route with your career path instead of a traditional route with her with your career path. And I really just wanted to chat with her for a really long time. And then recently, a publicist reached out to me and we were finally able to make this one happen. So if you don't know, Diane is the author of the best-selling book, The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life that you want. The book has been translated into five languages now and has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and Oprah.com. Yeah, Oprah. (laughs) Diane created and teaches the first class in the country on the gig economy in the MBA program at Babson College in Boston. She writes, speaks, consults, and coaches about the gig economy and the future of work. And this conversation was just a blast. We had a really fun time. In fact, after the interview, 
Diane goes, well, this was actually a really different interview than most of my interviews. And I said, yeah, that's the thing that I always try to do is I just want to have a good conversation and try to bring you out of your normal answers and get some good stuff. And she said, well, if that was the goal, then you definitely did that. So I can't wait to share this one with you guys. So many things that we talk about. We talk about what it was like growing up for her and making the decisions that she made to take the career path that she took. And then we talk about how she got the idea to write the book, The Gig Economy, in the first place. And we talk about her views on traditional career choices versus unconventional career choices. So a lot of things that I really am a big supporter of, Diane is an expert in. So we we talk a lot about a bunch of different things, but I really resonated with her. And I think you guys are going to as well. And I can't wait for you to listen to this interview. But first, really quickly, if you are somebody who loves to go to events to connect with people in person, then consider this your personal invitation to come out to my event, Build Your Network Live 2019, out here in November. November. Uh, that's November 8th through 10th in Las Vegas. We actually rented out the whole first floor of Top Golf behind MGM. And I cannot wait to spend some time with you guys to connect in person, bringing out some amazing speakers, some good friends of mine who are going to not only just come and speak and leave, but also spend some time with us, do some of the activities, go to some dinners, all that good stuff. You guys know me, you know how much I am all about connection. So this event is going to be focused more on connection and then content secondarily. So you will still get some amazing things to go home and implement into your life your career, your business, whatever. But the main thing is you're going to be leaving with real relationships with people who get it, people who understand where you are, where you're coming from in life. And I cannot wait to share this amazing experience with you all. Head over to buildyournetworklive.com to grab your tickets today. I know that a lot of people say this, but this event is going to sell out and you're not going to want to miss it because we cannot go just add extra space. So that's the one downside to renting out Topgolf is at a hotel room, we can just ask for a bigger room or we can ask them to move the wall. Uh, all separators and, and make a bigger room. With this one, we have rented out the biggest space that they have available. And if we fill that, as soon as we fill that up, we literally cannot take any more people. So don't wait for this one. Like, Make sure you go over to buildyournetworklive.com and grab your tickets right now so that you don't miss out on this one. It's going to be the inaugural event. So make sure that you are here and I look forward to hanging out with you over there. And now here is my chat with Diane Mulcahy. Diane, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm super, super stoked to have a conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, ma'am. So look, there's so many things that we agree on. Okay, I've, I've gone through some of your content, watched a few videos, uh, gone through some of the book and different things like that. And I can just tell that there's a lot of a lot of things that I can definitely get on board with. <laughs> so I can't wait to kind of jump into that conversation. But first, let's build a little bit of context here for somebody who's out there listening who may not know who you are. And I like to do that in a real sense. So take me all the way back to, let's say, junior high, high school, Diane. Tell me about what life looked like for you in terms of your household, parents, school, likes, dislikes? Like, what, what was life like for junior high Diane McKay? Wow, that is a trip back down memory lane, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I grew up in the suburbs of Boston and I went to public school. And in high school, I was an athlete. I was a runner, a competitive runner, and I ran long distance the mile, the two mile, the half mile. And I was also in the sort of college prep curriculum that we had at our school. So I was an honors student and was also pretty involved in extracurricular activities. So I liked to paint and draw. I was a little bit creative. I had a part-time job as a sports writer. 
So I would cover the track meets and the cross-country meets for our local newspaper. And then in the off-season, when I there were a few years when I didn't do cross-country, I would cover swimming or football or something, and I would write for the local paper. And then on the weekends, I worked as a nurse's aide. I became a certified nurse's aide and worked at the local hospital as a nurse's aide during high school. So a little bit of an underachiever then. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, you know, had a lot of things going on. Did you do all of these things from an internal desire to do things? Or did you ever feel any sort of external pressure from authority figures, maybe parents or family members to like continue to excel and be a better version of yourself? That's a good question. I mean, my parents were, I'm a first generation college student. So I feel like I lived in a reasonably low pressure household in terms of any mandates coming from above, from the parental figures. I think it was really driven more by my own interest and curiosity and desire to go do something different than what I saw around me. I mean, I knew that I wanted to get out of Dodge when I got out of high school, and I knew I had to work to do that. Where do you think that that desire came from? I don't know where that came from. It was a very strong internal motivator and it just showed up probably in like late middle school and it really propelled me through high school into college. So Got yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where it came from. Just kind of an innate desire within you to like do something different than what you saw in front of you. That is absolutely the case. I looked around and I thought, this is not for me. I want mm -hmm. to live in a city. I knew at a very early age that I didn't want to grow up and live in the suburbs. I grew up in the suburbs, but I didn't want to continue living there. I always wanted to move into a city from like when I was eight. Got and it. I knew that I wanted to go to college. And I figured I, at the time, I wanted to be a physician. So I had medical school in mind. So coming into high school, did you have, were you like fairly independent in terms of your decision making, like going into college? Like, so, so you're in high school, you're trying to plan, hey, we're, what's the next step for me? Talk to career counselors, parents, or what, or were you pretty much like, you know what, I already know what I want to do and I have the grades to do it. And this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to stay in New England. And I worked a little bit with my guidance counselor and with my teachers. I had some really great teachers, but really the process was in my hands. Hmm. I drove it. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 
is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Got it. So coming into college, first off, you said you stayed in New England. So what school did you end up going to? I went to Harvard. Harvard. So now you're at Harvard, which if you haven't heard of Harvard, Google it. It's a really small college. I'm just kidding. So you you go to Harvard, (laughs) right? So, and uh, did you find it to be like with all the things that you did in high school, so many extracurriculars and athletics and sports and writing and, and then your grades and all these things that you had going on, did you find that it was more difficult to do a lot of those things in college or did were you like one track minded, laser focused on academics? Talk to me about like a little bit about what you were what you were up to when you were a student at Harvard. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in a way I took the foot off the pedal in college in the sense that I really focused a lot more on academics. So I didn't work as much. When I worked in high school, I mean, I worked for money. I worked for pay. So I didn't do that as much in college. I had gotten some money, some financial aid, and I was able to not have to work all the time or really in the Certainly the in the beginning, I didn't work freshman year. So that was really nice. And I did do some athletics and some extracurriculars. But really, I focused on friendships and social life and academics, at least initially. Looking back, would you have done anything differently with that experience? Yes, I would have been a lot smarter about networking. And I don't mean that in sort of a like a strategic calculating sense. What I mean is when I got to college, I was a pretty provincial kid and I hadn't traveled a lot. I, I had a fairly sheltered, narrow upbringing. And when I got to college, I think I, I was an introvert anyways and kind of shy. And I had great friends, but I really didn't sort of put myself out there in a way to kind of meet a lot of people. I didn't take advantage like I should have of getting to know my professors, going to their office hours, being really proactive about getting to know them or taking on research projects, that kind of thing. So if I think I think if I had to do it over again, I would have focused more on the people generally rather than, you know, if I had to make trade-offs between doing a shift or uh studying in the library or doing something social or or spending time in an office hour, I think I probably should have erred more towards the side of the people. Got it. Got it. So where in this timeline do you start to realize that, hey, medical school is not really what I want to do? Oh, I realized that my first biology class because I got back. <laughs> One my, class I mean, it was it was a rude awakening, uh, and yeah, I mean, I had been like a I had been a candy striper in hospitals, and I had worked as a nurse's aide, so I had done a lot of medical stuff in high school for a high school kid. And right. I got to college. I took my first pre-med bio class. I think I got a D on the first exam. And then I looked around at the class and I thought, Oh my, no, are these my peers? Everybody was. Super like serious and sciencey and competitive, right. and I thought I'm out, yeah. <laughs> and I know ne- I really never went back from there. 
Yeah. So super curious about that because first of all, props to you for being able to decide that at 17, 18, however old you were when you're taking that class, because I find that a lot of people have really big troubles letting go of the thing that they've attached their identity to, whether it be a present identity or a future identity, if that makes sense. So when somebody is like, well, you know, like they take pride in the fact, well, I'm at Harvard, I'm getting pre-med and then I'm going to go to medical school and, and like all this other stuff. And then the thought of not going down that path and finding out something different to do, especially with all the work that you had done in high school up to that point to set yourself up to be more successful in college is something that a lot of people like, can't come to terms with. Did you find yourself wrestling with the idea or was it pretty much like, this doesn't seem fun, peace, I'm out? Yeah, it was more of a mic drop situation, which is interesting because I really was very wed to the idea and had spent a lot of time talking with people about this dream and working in the medical field and had, had really, I felt like I had done a lot of the legwork to figure out whether it was something I liked. And I took a lot of science classes in high school and excelled at them. But I think there was just something about, it just hit me. And I was like, this is not for me. And I went into an adjacent field and I started doing psychology, but with a biology focus, brain and behavior and things like that. And that seemed to satisfy the urge to be sciencey. And then I just started branching out and taking things that I had never taken. Hmm. And that was really an eye-opening experience as well. Like I remember taking my first economics class and thinking, where has this been all my life? This is amazing. And I immediately became like an economics minor. I just loved it. So I guess there was something about college where I was just having immediate and significant reactions to things that I was doing. Yeah, but that's such an amazing thing because I feel like too many people don't experiment enough in their 20s with just different career paths and options and they make up their mind at 16 or 17 years old that this is what I'm going to be and this is what I'm going to do and they go do it and then they're 25 years into a career, they're like, this isn't fun, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> do, what would you say to somebody, you know, like 22 to 25-year-old old, maybe they're in school, maybe they're out of school, maybe they're dabbling in a career path. What, what would you say to somebody like that in terms of advice to help them find something that they can really get fired up about? Yeah. And that's a relevant question because we're a host family to local Harvard students. So I, you know, I live in Boston now and Harvard has a program where students who are on full financial aid or who come from overseas are matched with local host families to help them ease the transition, get to know the local area, et cetera. So we've done that for a number of years. Awesome. So I've had these conversations with college age students. And my advice is pretty consistent, which is Follow your curiosity. I mean, yes, if you get to school and you have an idea that's long held about what you want to do, go ahead and take those classes but and see how you feel about them. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, take other classes that are just strike your fancy, that catch your eye, that seem really fun, that seem super interesting. That's what college is for. It's for experimenting. It's a very low risk environment mm -hmm. to try out anything that interests you or catches your eye. So I agree with you. I think the 20s are a great time for that. Not the only time, but a great time. Yeah. And I love, I love that you use that term, a low risk environment, because that's 
really what it is. And as young 20 something, it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around the fact that like how much time you have to figure things out because you're so pressured to have it all figured out right now. And you start getting frustrated when you see this person over here have success doing the thing that they thought they were going to do, but they were actually meant to do that. And that's what they're doing. And then you're over here just trying this thing and trying that thing and trying this other thing. You feel like a failure. And yeah, I just wholeheartedly would agree with you on that, Diane, and just say, this is one of the most low risk times in your life. Life just to figure things out, experiment and find something that, that really fires you up. Okay, so so moving into uh, college, so you change your your major, you bring in economics as a minor. What did you end up majoring in? Uh, psychology. Okay, so major in psychology. Talk to me like career path at this point. What was your idea? Like switching to psychology, was it just like I want to be in mental health? Do I like I, I want to be in marketing? Like what like what was your original intention to use the psychology degree? Yeah, I, I feel like you're attributing a level of planning to me that I did not have when I was in college. <laughs> I mean, I. <laughs> that's one know. reason I asked the question because that's that's, that's something I'm I'm kind of alluding to for anybody listening. But yes, go ahead. I think I had several ideas of careers that I could imagine. Going into mental health was not one of them. I ended up going through campus recruiting and taking a job at a healthcare consulting firm. So the healthcare theme is still going strong. It's just morphing and manifesting differently. Hmm. And it was pretty much a standard training ground that you would get at any consulting firm in terms of writing reports, doing the occasional presentation, doing some quantitative analysis, learning about the industry, and except that it was focused entirely on healthcare. And that really worked for me. It really helped me take a substance, you know, an interest that I had in an industry and build some skills around that. So it was kind of the perfect first job for me. And even then, I think one of the things that really drove me to start thinking about structuring a different kind of career was that when I joined the consulting firm, the advice that I got from people was, when you start your career, look around you in your first job and figure out whose job you want and then set your sights on that. You know, what do you need to do to get there? That's how you progress. And I thought, okay, great. I can do that. Perfect. So I get to my consulting job and then I look around and I realize I don't want any of this. I don't like anybody's job. Everybody's like working too much, working too hard. I'm not interested in this. So it was an interesting experience I had with that advice. And I knew then that I wanted something that looked non-traditional. Yeah, I love that. That's such fantastic advice, whoever gave it to you. And that nobody ever gave me that advice, but I figured that out as I was going throughout my first job, which was just like, you got to be able to look into the future and, and ask yourself, where's the ceiling here? Like, and is there a ceiling? Because I don't like particularly like having ceilings above me. And that's how it was <laughs> when I was in my, fr- I was a door-to-door salesman for about six years, like door-to-door retail sales, training, management, recruiting, all that stuff. And uh, I eventually got into what I do now because I just looked at my day-to-day life in 10 years and I just didn't like what I saw. And I looked at the people around me who I should have wanted to be like, and it was just like, I just don't want that. And it's amazing how much clarity that exercise can give you. If you're listening to this right now and you're working somewhere like that, do this, like do this right now. Think about the people that work at your company and ask yourself, 
would I want to trade places with this person in the next five to 10 years if I keep working and working and working to climb up this ladder? And if the answer is no, then maybe it's time to con- start considering at least venturing off into doing something else. So Diane, talk to me about what your decision process was going forward in terms of, because uh, I know that I know that you have a few books that you've written, The Gig Economy, probably the most well-known of them, but I know that you started writing and things like that. So was this always something that was super interesting to you? Were you writing on the side? Like, Talk to me about the idea behind your first book. I wasn't writing on the side. I always felt like I wanted to write, but I just didn't know, particularly when I was younger. Honestly, I didn't really feel like I had anything to say. I didn't know what I would write about because I didn't feel that I had a voice or a perspective that was obvious or interesting to write about. So I had this ongoing desire to want to write about things, but felt like I needed to wait for that thing to appear. Do you feel like that was a mistake? I don't feel like that was a mistake. I do think if I were to do it over again, I might have devoted more time on my own writing about things. Like maybe saying, okay, I'm not necessarily going to publish this, but Mm -hmm. this thing is interesting to me. I'm just going to play with that idea in like a notebook and maybe spent more time developing the skill. But as you mentioned earlier, I'm a fairly goal-oriented person. And it was like, okay, if this isn't going to publication, I'm out. (laughs) So I was, you know, I was doing other things. I wasn't really focused on it, but it was always there in the back of my mind for sure. Okay, cool. So first book, talk to me like timeline here. And then what brought this first idea about? Yeah. So after healthcare, after I went to graduate school, my next job was working at a venture capital firm in the healthcare practice. So the healthcare theme persists for a long time in many different forms. So I'm at a venture capital firm. I'm investing in healthcare companies because I understand healthcare and everybody else understands investing. That was kind of the breakdown of my position at the venture capital firm that I worked in. So I was investing in healthcare and I did that for a number of years. I was an investor in healthcare companies and then in technology companies. So when it came time to write a book, I wrote about venture capital investing, which was something that I, you know, it's kind of an apprentice career. You learn it by doing it and by working with people who know what they're doing and have been doing it for a number of years. So when I sat down to write the book, it was really drawing on that number of years of experience of actually doing it. In addition to combining it with, I had gone to graduate school in public policy. So the first book that I wrote was on venture capital policy. And then the second one was on, it was written for entrepreneurs about how to raise money for their venture. Got it. So the first one was like the policies for sustainable equity financing. And then the second one would be venturing forward. Yeah. The first one was, should governments be venture capitalists? That was kind of the premise of it. And then the second one was, I'm an entrepreneur. How do I even think about this? And now there's a lot of books out there, but at the time there really weren't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And with the Silicon Valley culture, I feel like venture capital is a almost like household term now. Like most people know what that is. And I feel like back in the time that these books were written, it probably was not the case. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think people had a general, you know, it was always out there in sort of the general environment. Like people were aware that there were these big tech companies and they were venture backed and then going public because they were such big things. I think people had a general awareness, but not like now where people understand like what venture capital financing is and understand the companies that 
that receive it. Yeah, got it. So I'm curious about the intention behind these books. Was this something that you want, because they're, they're such niche topics. Was it something that you wanted to improve your credibility in your field? Was it a research project for you that ended up turning into, why don't I share this with other people? What were kind of the intentions when you went forward writing these first couple books? The intention honestly was, these are ideas that I feel like I want to get out into the world. And I think for anyone who writes, it is really important to understand what your intention is for anything that you write. And it can be different for different things that you write. It doesn't have to stay the same. But certainly in the beginning, what I really wanted to do was get my ideas out there. I wanted to change conversations and I wanted to frame the discussion. So for example, the policy book, like should governments get involved in venture capital was an important issue, right? States in the United States were getting involved. There were whole countries in Europe that were devoting significant capital to financing startup companies. Like, was that something that they should even be doing? And why are we not? And what are the impacts? And that was something I really wanted to explore. And I wanted to frame the discussion that was going on about that. I wanted to participate in it and influence it. How much do you think your experience in writing and like putting together these other pieces, how much do you think that played into your ability to create a book as big, really, as the gig economy? I think it mainly the way it played into it was giving me the confidence to believe that I could write a book on the gig economy, which was a topic that I didn't have five years of experience doing and learning and knowing. It was certainly a brand new topic, broadly speaking. And I had relatively good experience in the sense that I had created an MBA class and I had been teaching it and I had been talking and getting feedback and iterations with students about this topic. So I I think I had good experience, but I think having written the prior books gave me the confidence to believe that I had the experience and the knowledge and the ability to research and pull it together into a book. I think if it was my first book, it would have been more challenging for sure. Yeah, it was more it was more the confidence that, hey, I've already done this with a different topic. So this is the same process, just have to figure it out. Yeah, and my experience is every book is completely different. Some are hard, some are easy, some are quick, some are slow. Some are involved in deep. Some feel like they just flow off the pen. So I knew that it wouldn't be completely the same, but I think just the confidence of, I know I can do this right, right. was really helpful. Yeah. Talk to me about how important that is in general with most things. I find that that's such a common factor with people is that imposter syndrome seems to be way more common than confidence. It's interesting because I think that's true. And for many people, it's just they have the credibility or the expertise or the ability. They just don't recognize it within themselves. And I go through this a lot with my students or with clients that I work with on a coaching basis, helping them really understand and own their credibility and their expertise and their abilities. You really have to, I think for many people, what what it requires is reflecting on that and stepping into it in a real way. And if you don't do that, I think you feel like an imposter. What's going on, everybody? This episode of the show is brought to you in part by ClearBank. Your favorite Netflix show gets canceled before the second season. You draw last pick in your fantasy football draft. You're roused from sleep by the construction outside your window. The one day that you can sleep in. We can't change those things, but ClearBank is changing one unfair thing, how hard it is to get funding as an entrepreneur. They know that it's scary to put your house up as collateral for a bank loan and how scary and time-consuming it can be pitching investors, not to mention giving up pieces of your own company if the investor likes it. 
Well, ClearBank believes that fundraising can be easy. They created a new way for founders to raise money without tapping into their personal resources. They can fund you anywhere from $10,000 to $10 million in a single day. All you need to do is fill out their 20-minute term sheet to get started. ClearBank works with e-commerce companies, SaaS companies, and yes, mobile apps as well. They have funded thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs and and they are on track to now have invested over $1 billion in 2019. Over $1 billion in 2019. So as a special gift to my listeners, qualifying companies that get approved by ClearBank will get $1,000 of additional capital. To sign up, visit clearbank.com slash Travis. That's ClearBank with a C, C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C, clearbank.com slash Travis. ClearBank, stop pitching and get back to doing what you love, growing your business. What's up, everyone? Just wanted to take a quick second and give a shout out to my favorite podcasting app, Himalaya. If you're not listening to podcasts on this new app, you're definitely missing out. It's like a social media app, but for podcast listeners. Follow your go-to shows, like and comment on your favorite episodes, and download professionally curated playlists made just for you. So head on over to your app store or Google Play store and download Himalaya today and thank me later. What would like top one or two things that you have done to increase your own confidence in your career? I think talking to other people has been the most helpful. I think for many of us, particularly those of us that might have imposter syndrome, as you call it, that's a story in your head. (laughs) And what can be helpful is saying to somebody, here, take a look at my one page bio, take a look at my resume, take a look at my LinkedIn profile. Tell me, what do you think of it? And having somebody come back to you and say, you're underselling yourself. Wait, what about this experience? Why aren't you talking about that? Or why aren't you quantifying anything that you've done? Like one of the most amazing things about you is X dollars, X numbers, whatever it is. Why aren't you putting that out there? So I think it's getting somebody else to say, here's how I see you. You're amazing. Why aren't you talking about yourself like that? Why aren't you putting that version out into the world? So you might say that uh, networking has a lot to do with it. (laughs) I mean, networking can be really helpful because you can put yourself in ecosystems and around people that can give you that feedback in a really credible, impactful way, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. So Diane, I want to chat with you a little bit about the gig economy now. So it's a pretty widely known concept now since your book came out. But for the people listening who may not be familiar with it, can you first of all, just explain exactly what it is? And then we'll kind of dive into some more of the concepts. Yeah. So first of all, it's not just Uber drivers. We're not talking about just Uber drivers. When I talk about the gig economy, What I mean is if you're not a full-time employee in a full-time job, so that can be if you're a consultant or an independent contractor or a freelancer or an on-demand worker. It can also be somebody who's in a full-time job but has a side gig. So that person's in the gig economy too. The way that I talk about the gig economy is broad and it crosses all income levels, all education levels, and all sectors and industries. Got it. So... I'm really curious about this because you've taught a class in an MBA program at Babson College in Boston for five years before you wrote the book, right? I'm curious to know how well received that message was to a bunch of students who were paying a good amount of money for an education that they thought was going to get them a job 
And then now they go to this class and you're like, hey, don't get a job. What kind of response did you get from people? Well, I'll tell you the response I got. The first time that I offered the course, I created this class. It was the first one in the country. The first time I offered it at Babson, I didn't have enough students sign up. So it was canceled. <laughs> so, really? so there's the response I got. Yeah. There's the answer then right there. I, yeah. There's the answer. And then demonstrating resilience and grit, I went back the next semester or year, I forget, and offered it again. And I got just enough students to be able to offer it. And the students that took the class were not viewing it as you framed it. They, what they were taking the class for was to find out about this interesting economic trend that was going on. You know, it was all very arm's length and what's going on in the economy and it, things like it. that. They were very, they were very interested in it. Very high level, very yeah. academic. And it was only kind of three and four years in when the gig economy started to become a thing, when it became obvious that the economy was changing and the workforce was changing and independent work was growing, then students started showing up and saying, I'm graduating help. What yeah, can right. I do to prepare myself? I see where this is going and I recognize that I don't have the mindset, the skills, the right. tools to be able to succeed. And that's why they take it. Yeah, like I've been preparing for the wrong thing my whole life almost. You know, I've been doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing to get the job, to get the 401k. And like, that doesn't look like it's going to be the best option for me at this point. What do I do now, right? Yes, that and more commonly, they get into the class and say, I've been doing all the right things all my life and preparing for this career and the corporate ladder and the home in the suburbs and the 2.2 kids. And oh dear, that's not actually the life I want. This other life, which I'm thinking about and envisioning now, looks a lot more interesting and appealing to me. So, yeah, so, so that's it's usually like, what happens. Yeah. So, so it's almost like they didn't even know that that version of success existed. That's correct. Because when I start the class, I make everybody start with a blank slate, which is, okay, forget everything and tell me right now, what does success look like to you? What are the values and priorities that are important to you to live, to have in your life, to reflect in the way that you live yeah. and sketch that out for me? I make them do a lot of reflective work which they haven't done. It was, certainly they haven't done recently if they've right. done it at all. And that's where the change comes. So is there a particular aspect of the gig economy, quote unquote, lifestyle that you find resonates with your students more than maybe another piece of it in, in terms of like, hey, is it the, you know, the lifestyle choice or the freedom to do what you want more, the flexible hours, the uncapped income potential? What do you find is like is mostly the thing where, where people are like, really, you can do that and that and still have these results? Wow, that's amazing. Mostly what I find is the vision is they say, wait, I don't have to have a full-time job and commute into an office every day for the rest of my life. That's right. the main thing where they start to realize I can work independently. I can work remotely. That's not to say there aren't trade-offs. They might be, end up in a place where they realize I'm actually willing to make less money in order to be able to travel every summer or take every summer off with my kids or whatever it is they want to do. Or they're willing to say, 
I'm happy to work a full-time job, but I understand that that's probably a three to five year proposition. Hmm. And then I better be ready to move on to something different or to work independently. And I'm going to take advantage of that break. And I'm going to go do things that are important to me. Yeah. And I'm going to save the money to do that, right? They become much more intentional and strategic about executing their life so that they get to the version of success that they have defined. That's probably the biggest change. Yeah, I love that. It's more more about building a life resume rather than a job resume. Which is Completely. Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir here because that's everything that I do. And the reason why I do what I do is for all of those things. And so I, I love that in a culture that a collegiate culture that typically might look down at that sort of life choice or career path. I love that you're kind of standing out and saying like, no, it's just time to get real about what we want out of life. And if you want the corporate ladder thing, great, do that. But if you don't want that, you don't have to. Completely. And it turns out these are MBA students. These are people who have ticked the box all the way along. A lot of them are in full-time corporate jobs and Mm. they're getting their MBA part-time or they've left those jobs to get an MBA to then go back to those jobs. And this is a revelation. It is nothing short of a complete new insight and way of thinking. And the reaction to that is impactful. They I've had students drop out of the MBA program. I've had students quit their jobs. I've had them drop out of campus recruiting, sell Mm. houses, move cities, leave and go traveling for 10 months, all kinds of things. Yeah, that's such an incredible work that you're doing. That's that's so amazing. Tell me about the point along this journey, if you will, this time that you were teaching this class before you wrote the book, where you realized, you know what, this topic probably deserves a book. Like the gig economy isn't just a thing that exists that nobody really knows about. It's actually becoming quite possibly the better route to go in life for most people. But was there a point along the way where you were just like, wow, I got to write a book about this? Actually, the point along the way came from other people telling me I should write a book about this. And I thought, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I want to write a book about this, if there's enough to say at this point about this. And so the way that I approached it was I went to a writer's conference and I went to one of those manuscript marts. So at most writer's conferences, you can submit a short proposal to an agent or more than one agent. And the deal is you write it and submit it and they read it and you get a 20 minute session where they give you feedback. So I signed up for a couple of those sessions and I figured, you know, I'm not going to put a lot of time into this unless I feel like there's demand, there's interest and Mm -hmm. it resonates. Right. So that was kind of my test balloon. That was my experiment, my low risk, low cost experiment with whether this was possible. And out of that, I was signed by an agency. So then I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the idea was validated, it seemed. Absolutely. My go-to-market strategy was validated from the market. So I went forward. Yeah. Yeah. Which is how most ideas should be executed, I think. So (laughs) nice, nice work on that. Yeah. You talk a little bit about the access economy. Can you expound on that and let us know more about that? I can expound on that for a long time. So the access economy to me is a personal, it's nothing short of a personal finance revolution, really, of our generation. And what I mean by the access economy is not having to own. So you can still create a lifestyle that looks 
any way that you want. It can be as simple or as lavish as you want or anything in between. But the difference is now there are so many ways to be able to access that lifestyle when and where and how and how much you want. Mm. And what that does to your personal finances is incredibly powerful because it means that number one, you don't have to take on debt to purchase expensive things. And number two, when you don't have debt, you don't have all these fixed payments that you have to cover by working. So the access economy, the ability to access your transportation through Uber and Zipcar, your housing through Airbnb, your clothes through Rent the Runway, it makes everything a variable cost that can go up and can go down. So you have so much flexibility in your financial life. Un unprecedented levels of flexibility. It's a revolution. Yeah, I absolutely love. I was super excited to get you on the show to talk about these things because this is everything that I try to tell people is like everything that we're talking about. Like you can live a version of life that does not look like the way everybody told you your version of life should look like. And a lot of the time, it's even a better version of life. And everybody always told me growing up that enjoy your time in school because, you know, once you get out into the workforce, you know, life isn't as co- as good as it was in high school or whatever. And I am on the total opposite page of that. <laughs> like, I, I enjoy the heck out of my life now. And I think it's way better now than, it, than it's ever been in college or high school or all the other times when people say that, oh, those were the good times. And it's just like, well, that just tells me that you're doing something on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that is not something that you enjoy doing because you have to do it in order to cover your monthly expenses because you're doing all the other things that other people told you that you should be doing too. (laughs) And it's just like this crazy cyclical thing that never ends until you're 65 and retired and ready to start traveling and seeing the world when you you have to walk with a cane. That's so correct. And that's such a moving example. I mean, even just hearing you say that people told you to enjoy this very short window when you were young, because Mm -hmm. then life becomes a slog. It's just so depressing. Yeah, Um, that's a great word. Suffocating almost. (laughs) It really is. And I remember somebody that I interviewed when I was doing research for my book, they said, one of my motivations for working independently was that I wanted to create a life I didn't have to take a vacation from. And I think that's a really, that's a powerful, motivating sentiment versus enjoy college because then it's over, right? (laughs) It's all downhill from there. Exactly. Much more inspiring to feel like you have the ability and the control and the reins to create whatever version of life is exciting and inspirational to you. And it can be minimalist and living in this like empty one bedroom apartment, but it doesn't have to be. It can be anything. It can be living in being a digital nomad and traveling the world. It can, it can be anything that you envision. And I think that it's much more of an empowering way to approach structuring your career and your life, frankly. Yeah, very, very well said. I could talk to you about this kind of stuff for a really long time, Diane. So if I don't purposefully switch the conversation here, we're going to be talking for a few hours. And I know that neither one of us have time to do that. So let's go ahead and move into a little bit of a networking conversation, which I know that you are all about. You said you have an entire chapter in your book dedicated to this very concept. So this is the question that I ask everybody to get this conversation moving in the right direction. Who you know or what you know, Diane, which one is more important and why? Who you know. Who you know is more important. But I want to caveat that by saying that you can also make great, great strides with what you know. And in fact, 
depending on the person I'm talking to, I might change my answer. So I'm just going to caveat my whole response. How's that? (laughs) Yeah, that works. That works. So I have a chapter in my book devoted to this. And the way that I talk about it is I use the term connecting instead of networking, because networking to me brings up this vision of huge, like terrible conference rooms with bad wine and tons of people that I don't feel like talking to, right? It just has all kinds of negative cards. Yes, all kinds of connotations. The reason I say that it is important what you know is that I talk about two things. I talk about inbound connecting and outbound connecting. So inbound connecting is really about pulling people towards you. And the way that you do that is by putting out your ideas, your perspectives, your knowledge, your insights out into the world. Hmm. And if you're an extroverted person, it can be through speaking or teaching or doing podcasts and media. Or if you're a more introverted person, it can be by putting out writing, by starting a blog post or by writing for an industry publication or by writing for the general press or by interviewing people and then writing about them. So putting those ideas out allows people to find you, to identify you as like-minded and then approach you. So you're bringing people into you. And that's a very effective way of networking because your ideas are doing all the work for you Mm. and they're finding the people that you should know. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I would tell people all the time that the number one tool that I've used to build my own network is my podcast. And without this show, I don't even know the ramifications that I would have on the people that I've been able to connect with that I would not have been able to connect with had it not been for having a show like this. So I hands down 100% agree with you. I tell everybody like you should start a podcast, even if you never intend on being a top show and getting millions of downloads and making it your full time career like I've been able to do. If you just want to get to know the best people in your niche or your industry, then just start a show because it's a fantastic excuse to talk to whoever you want to talk to. And it's a great value add for both sides of the table. So I 100% agree with you on that. And plus the positioning with which you're able to connect with those people is much better than walking up to them cold, introducing yourself at an event and handing a business card. Absolutely. And, and I think it goes, the other, one of the concepts I talk about in my book is the offer and the ask. And I think when you're hosting a podcast or you're writing an article or you're interested in interviewing with somebody, you're making them an offer. You're saying, I would like to champion you or I would like to give your ideas and perspectives a platform or I would like to feature you. And that's a real offer for most people. Most people appreciate being asked that. And so it's a powerful way to meet people. 100% agree with you on that. We're coming down here to the last few minutes, Diane. Do you have any sort of, like if you could leave people with one piece of advice around connecting and building real relationships with people, I'm talking like actual relationships, not just contact information. What would your biggest piece of advice be around that? I think my biggest piece of advice would be to lead it. Meaning Be the one that creates the content, be the one that is the speaker, not the audience member, or be the one who curates and leads events that you're interested in, like initiate coffees or lunches or initiate the dinner for your 
industry people or initiate the cocktails after work for a broad swath of people in your company so you can get to know them. When you're the leader or the host or the curator, you're visible even to people that you didn't manage to connect with or talk to one-on-one during that event or during that evening. So you've won on all fronts. You've made yourself more visible to a much broader group of people. And again, that pulls people towards you. You're the person who's leading, who's curating, who's hosting. So I think that's probably one of the most overlooked but effective approaches to connecting. Don't rely on going to other people's events. Create your own. Yes, I can't even explain how wholeheartedly I agree with you on this, Diane. So if you're listening to this right now and you don't do any of those things, you don't have any platform, whether it's YouTube, podcast, an event, a meetup, some sort of platform that you are leading and, and, and helping out with and really look at what you're doing, look at your niche, your industry and ask yourself how, like, if I were able to make this happen, what would that look like? And then start taking action on making something happen because that positioning is going to be such a better way to meet the those people. Diane, thank you so much for coming to the show today. We're, we're, we're running out of time. We're going to move on to the last segment here, something I like to call the random round. Just a few quick random questions and quick random answers. Ready? Ready. What profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt? Interior design. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Milton Friedman. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? I'm a reader. I'm a big reader. I like books. I like hardcover books, ideally, or paperbacks. I like physical books. And it's a big treat for me when I can read those. But to be honest, I travel a lot and I mostly read on my Kindle. Got it. Give us a book recommendation for the audience. A recent book that I've read is Essentialism. And I would recommend that. It's all about figuring out what really matters in your life and focusing on it. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. My morning routine is varied. I know that goes against popular wisdom, but uh, sleep is really important to me. So I don't set an alarm. I'm a coffee addict, so I have coffee. And I tend to do deep work in the morning. So I will either go to the gym or yoga class or exercise, or if I have something like a, an article I'm writing or something big I'm working on, I might just dive right in for a few hours. And then as a treat or sort of at the end of that period of intense effort, then go do something physical. Love it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite questions to ask in this round because of all the varying answers that I get. Because I, obviously you get, to the, you get the people that are like, oh, you know, I wake up at 3.35 a.m. every day. And I work out <laughs> for two and a half hours and then I drink this green shake while I meditate. And, you know, and it's like, okay, wow, that's crazy. But then you have other people like you who are just like such a more attainable thing, I think, for a lot of listeners to hear that it's possible to be successful without jump plunging in an ice bath as soon as you wake up every morning. So, Well, I mean, maybe I would be more successful if I got up at 3.35. I'm willing <laughs> to grant you that. But I also think it changes. I mean, so this summer, what I've been doing this month is I've been getting up and I've been reading for a half an hour with my coffee. And it has been delightful, you know? So sometimes I, I go through periods where I meditate or go outside. It just really varies. And yeah. I, I like that variety. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. What is your go-to pump up song? I don't have a song. I have a yoga teacher who puts together amazing playlists and I follow her playlists on Spotify yes. and she's a runner. 
So she has some like great upbeat playlists. I'm not a musical person and I, I'm not good at finding new music. It's just not my thing. And so I totally ride her coattails. (laughs) Love it. What is something that you are just not very good at, Diane? Oh my God, there's so many things. Just print out a list and put it in the show notes. I'm just kidding. Exactly, exactly. I think one of the things I'm really not good at is just getting into like super details. I'm much more of a forest person than a weeds person. And I can do it when I need to do it, but like I find it irritating sometimes and it's hard for me to focus in on that. So that's probably something that's hard for me to do. And I would just reiterate, I'm not very good about putting together a morning routine that I follow. (laughs) (laughs) Despite all the advice to the contrary. Yeah, yeah, there we go. And as we get everything wrapped up here, Diane, what is one place online where we are going to be able to find you the most? Uh, My website, which is dianemulcahy.com. And I also put out a monthly newsletter, which you can sign up for on my news on my website. And I usually kind of curate some of the writing and articles and interviews that I've done during that month. And then I curate the interesting, provocative, thoughtful news that I have pulled together on the gig economy in general. Perfect. So if you want to learn more about Diane and from Diane, first of all, I highly recommend doing that. She has such an amazing perspective and such unique content. Definitely go over to dianemulcahy.com. That's D-I-A-N-E-M-U-L-C-A-H-Y. And uh, check out some of the stuff that she has going on. Get a copy of The Gig Economy if you don't already. And thank me later for that. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Had a fantastic time Mm -hmm. chatting with you. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been a really interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. As most of you know, I talk a lot about giving value to others. This podcast is one of the ways that I do that since all the content from the show is totally 100% for free. And when people ask me how they can add value to me, one of the ways I tell them is to head over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and review. This not only gives me valuable feedback on what you think about the show, but it also helps me with Apple's algorithm. So please, 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 if you have not done that yet, head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review for the show. It adds tremendous value and it only takes a minute or two of your time. Also, if you have not yet registered for my live event out here at Top Golf behind MGM in Las Vegas this coming November, then you're going to want to head to buildyournetworklive.com to do that right away. Seating is extremely limited, so you need to act fast on this. Head to buildyournetworklive.com to grab your ticket today. Trust me, you are going to want to be a part of this inaugural live event so that in 10 years from now, you can brag about being one of the founding members. Plus, you know me, I promise I will over-deliver on value and make it worth way more than you are going to invest to get here. So have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.